Um, we are pausing communion for this season because it's Lent and uh, one way that we can make a difference. Um, we can kind of mark the season with not having communion together and we've been doing different practices. Uh, so far we have done uh, being present. Karina led us with that one. Lament that Steve led us with a few weeks ago. Uh, Visio Divina that Eden did last week. And this week we're doing a kind of a weird one, which is a practice of trust. And, and practicing is a funny thing. And I, I definitely, it's something that I need to practice, but I tend not to think of it as a practice. Like it's just sort of an underlying concept more than a thing that I think I should practice this. Um, however, I mean, it's one of those kind of abstract things that's kind of hard to like your finger on exactly, but we're going to give it a go. Um, trust is the thing that, you know, those guys, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, I'm trying not to break into veg tales. Um, they, what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he was about to throw them in the furnace, which is, we believe that our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, and I think it's the even if he doesn't, knowing that he could, but even if he doesn't, that's where trust lies. Um, and even if he doesn't, we will continue to worship him. We won't worship other gods. Um, so this story, as the man faced down what must have been hugely terrifying, like we tell it like it's like, well, whatever. But that must have been, can you imagine, like standing at the door of a fiery furnace, about to be thrown into it, and, and then you're just like, I think God will deliver us. I hope God will deliver us. I mean, I have many words that I can't say out loud on this recording. God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, I'm still going to worship him. So uh, trusting that God could save them is demonstrating trust. Demonstrating trust even if he doesn't. Trusting, it's trusting God, not trusting God for anything particular. It's trusting God in the presence of our fears, our enemies and our darkest moments. That's when we know that we trust. When everything's peachy, everything's easy, actually we don't need trust. We just bumble along. But this practice is meant to help us so that we know how to use that muscle when, it, when, it, when we need it. So I'm gonna read the chapter from Walking in the Wilderness and then we'll have a go at doing it. Um, so, uh, she writes, Isaiah 12, to surely God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my might. The Lord God has become my salvation. How do we trust in the midst of uncertainty? In the midst of injustice and a world filled with hatred? In the midst of financial insecurity or illness? How do we trust when all around us seems to be falling apart? When it seems that God is not present or worthy of our trust? We trust even where there seems to be no reason to trust. The dictionary defines trust this way. It's a verb. It's an action. It's a doing thing to commit or place in one's care or keeping. As followers of Christ, we commit our care and our keeping to the Holy One, the creator of all things. And trust becomes a spiritual practice. Daniel Wolfer, the healer, student of the spiritual life and writer, says a prayer practice is just that, practice. It's taking time to learn, to listen, to listen for God. It's listening, uh, it's taking time to see the hand of God at work in our lives. Trust is the solution to fear and uncertainty, while we, like the psalmists, put our trust in God. So um, let's have a go. I did this with the kids this morning, and uh, we did drawings. You, could, you, are feel, you are free to draw or write. Either one is good. 
uh, and actually it worked pretty well. Um, I want you to make three columns on your on your piece of paper. Um, Josh has a, a thing he can just share that will show what that looks like. For those who go, what's a column again? I don't remember. Is that across or down? It's down. Okay. So you've got three columns going down, and then there's a little block at the bottom as well. So make yourself three columns. And in the first column, uh, list your fears or draw something or a fear or an uncertainty. Put it in that column. And I want you to know there is no judgment with this. Do not judge yourself. Do not go, I shouldn't be fearing that. Whatever it is, put it in. You can draw it, write it down, no matter how rational it is, no matter how irrational it is, no matter how big it is or how small it is, I'm gonna stop talking so that you can actually do it. Thirty seconds, and then we'll do the next column. Okay, in the second column. Now, you, uh, I want you to choose one of your fears from the first column. You might not want to choose your biggest at this point. You might want to save that one for later when you've got a bit more time. Um, so just choose one that you kind of feel would be easily accessible right now. Uh, choose one of them. And I want you to think about how that particular fear or that uncertainty is getting in the way of your full participation in life. How is it getting in the way of your love for God? How is it getting in the way of your love for neighbor or of yourself? So it's that it holds me back from this. that column is how does that particular fear hold you back how is it getting in the way of your full participation in life how is it getting in the way of your love for god or your neighbor or yourself okay 30 more seconds and then we'll do the third column
Okay, the third con is to offer is to offer that fear to God um, and to listen to what the Holy One says in reply. So uh, I'm just going to pray and then you can apply that. So creator of the universe, I offer whatever your specific fear was. I offer that to you. You know it already and you love me just the same. And, and now, creator of the universe, I listen for what you want to say to me about this. So just listen for his reply. Thirty more seconds. What does God have to say about the fear? What does God have to say about how it's holding you back? And in the last space at the bottom, uh, it says, finally turn toward trust. So below your grid, write an affirmation of your trust in the Holy One. For example, God of life, you know my fears and you accept them as an offering from me. You are the one who made me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And like Isaiah said, I trust in you for you are my hope and my salvation. This is how we turn the thing, like Isaiah said, this is how we turn it around and we make it a song. This is how we make it our worship, is we offer the truth that we have in us and we offer it up. Now you might want to keep going another time and actually finish that off to go through all the fears that you put down first. Because this is a practice. This is not a one and done. This is a, you might need to repeat it for all the fears and uncertainties that you have. When we name them for ourselves, when we name them to God, and to one another, and we listen to what God wants to say, then that's how we build trust. Cool. So I'm gonna hand it over to Karina, who's gonna introduce Ben to us. All right. My friends, welcome here this morning. We're so glad to be gathering with you and any minute now, Ben is going to show up on my screen, but I just want to introduce my friend Ben Nichols, who is speaking today. He is of the CH variety of Nichols, because we know there's a bunch. Um, and I have known Ben for, I'm. it's like about four years, four or five years. It feels like it must be way longer than that, because you are so dear to me, you and your wife, Romay. Uh, have Romay is like 
one of my dearest friends. And so because of that, I am one of Ben's favorite people. That's just how this works. So, um, but Ben and Romay uh, are, have this organization called All People Free, which is exactly that, allpeoplefree.com. They have been uh, running this organization uh, for a couple of years, uh, basically in India, yes? Pakistan. Pakistan. Sorry. Geography is not my strong suit. Um, but anyways, we are thrilled to have Ben here. If you, you may have seen Ben before because they would occasionally come down uh, to, to church with us. And Ben is the one that is actually taller than my husband. So there are a few of those and Ben is one of them. And Ben, we are thrilled to hear from you this morning. I just pray that you would be blessed and um, that our hearts would be open to hearing from you. And uh, we just thank God for you, Ben. You're a gift to us, your family. They, uh, I should also say Ben and Romay have amazing kids who are friends with ours. They've got two boys and a girl. Um, and we're thrilled to have you here. So I... I always think I'm going to be like way more composed when I introduce, but then I just get all the gushy, mushy feelings and my little Enneagram 8 heart hardly knows what to do with them. But we love you guys. We <laughs> bless you and release you just to speak what God's put in your heart for us today. So amen. Take it away, Ben. First of all, thank you, Karina. appreciate that. And as a fellow Enneagram 8, I completely understand not knowing what to do with all those feelings. But uh, Josh and Karina... Uh, appreciate you both. Love you both. I also want to thank Eden for this opportunity to connect and share something that I am so passionate about. Uh, she and Brad have been instrumental in our lives over the last three years, and we're deeply grateful for the kindness that they've shown us and the way that they've held space for us. My wife and I are co-directors of, of All People Free, which is an organization dedicated to ending slavery in the brick-making factories of the Middle East and Asia. It is the single largest form of slavery in the world. Approximately 20 million people are forced to hand make bricks 12 to 16 hours a day, six days a week. Looks like that. Half of those people are women and children. The US Department of Defense estimates that there's between 13,500 and 17,500 humans trafficked in North America each year where we live. Uh, and that's approximately one in 25,000. Globally, one in 175 work in some form of modern day slavery. And where we work, one in 40 humans are trafficked. It is the most densely populated slave trade in the world. So over the next 20 minutes, uh, I'm hoping that I can just share a few stories and do my best to represent my friends in the brick kilns. Uh, they are very poor people. Some are widows, some are orphans. They are mostly followers of Jesus and as such, they are the persecuted church. Uh, they are humans being trafficked. Many of the young girls are used as sex slaves or become child brides. And the overwhelming majority are undocumented workers. In the words of Brene Brown, in order for slavery to work, in order for us to buy, sell, beat, and to treat people as animals, you have to completely dehumanize slaves. I want you to think about that for a minute. If that's what's been done to these people. They're living in a similar narrative to the slaves that we had here in the United States. At the core, our organization is in the identity restoration business. We are working diligently to provide ways in which their humanity can be restored. Um, 
Sarah, if you'll just take note, if you could insert the video at this point, I wanted to play a video for y'all, but unfortunately Zoom's not the best for that. So if you could uh, later in just mark the spot, that'd be great. I wanna share a story. You know, I, I remember setting, stepping foot into the brick kiln for the very first time. Uh, it, it was quite an experience. After traveling 26 hours by plane and then two hours by car, I had not slept. The sun was just starting to come up and the sound of Muslim prayers were being broadcast over loudspeakers outside the van. We traveled with two armed guards in the vehicle, and then there are two more armed guards on a motorbike ahead of us, not because I was any, in any imminent danger, but we are in a pretty rough area, and where we work, some of the people don't want me there, and we're also dealing with a people who have been treated harshly for a very long period of time, so they can be, they can be pretty aggressive. On that Sunday morning, I opened the door to the van and the sounds, the smell of burning plastic and coal filled the air, followed by a quick wave of heat. Temperatures were already at 40 degrees Celsius and the sun was just beginning to rise. They had brought me to this small church that was located between several brick kilns where the people lived and worked. As I approached this makeshift door on the front of the uh, on the front of the church it was a curtain hanging there there were shoes piled up because they take shoes when they enter a place take their shoes off when they enter a place of worship the room was mostly dark uh, men sat on one side of the room women have to sit on the other side of the room and there were roughly 500 600 people that are gathered into this uh, very small spot uh, small small building uh, sitting on the ground shoulder to shoulder uh, some were coming in after working all night long uh, others will complete their required work for the day after the service. So while these Muslim prayers are happening over loudspeakers outside, this Christian church also had speakers blasting their own prayers inside. It was just such a clash. I walked onto the stage, and in a few minutes later, I was preaching. Now, I, I've been a pastor for 17 years. Um, I started as a youth pastor at Hillsong in Phoenix, and just had various different preaching, teaching roles and pastoral roles. But what do, you, what do you preach to a crowd of people who only know a simple life? They have no education. They don't read or write. They have very little control over their destiny. They're completely mistreated. Their children suffer. I stood there in that moment, of course, all the notes, anything that I could have prepared, nothing prepares you for that, at least not, not, in, a, not in a sermon way. The only thing worth preaching was the love and the kindness of the resurrected Christ. I remember the words of Jesus as I stood there, as he stood in the temple and read from Isaiah, when he said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. I wondered as I stood there and remembered those words of Jesus, was the crowd that he was looking at similar to the crowd I was looking at? That's what we try to do. We try to proclaim liberty to the captives. If you've been in third world countries or seen extreme poverty, you certainly understand some of what I'm talking about. But in my experience, poverty alone doesn't always equal misery like this. Uh, I've met many poor people who live rich and full lives. It, this isn't the same thing. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, I came face to face with a form of human suffering that should not exist in our modern day world. Uh, I saw a young girl whose skin was burnt because acid was thrown on her when she refused an older man. 
I remember shaking hands with this young boy before I realized that his arm was recently broken. He had fallen while carrying a load of bricks uh, and they wouldn't take him to a doctor because they knew that they might get in trouble. So it was infected. And the, the children really are working everywhere. Uh, in church, kids are smiling. Uh, for many of them, I'm the only white person they have ever seen. So they'll respond when they see me. And, and uh, even, in the, even in the brick kilns, when they come up, I'll get some response from, from them. Uh, but aside from that, when you look in the brick kilns, the kids are not playing. They're not smiling. It's not like poverty in other, other places. My friend Harold Eberly has traveled to third world countries for 50 years. And he says this is the only place he's ever gone where kids don't smile. It is poverty amplified by persecution and dehumanization. When you treat a person like they're worthless long enough, what happens? But the good news is, first, the light of the world does really shine brightest in the dark places. The real gospel, the real good news of Jesus, it does work everywhere and in all situations. And I would argue that if it doesn't work for the person stuck in slavery, it's probably not the gospel Jesus came bringing. If it doesn't work for the others, the minorities, the outcasts, is it really good news? Second, the solutions are so simple and so attainable, and we are seeing some really exciting results. So I'm not hopeless, far from it. Uh, but I want you to see that these are real people, that this is a real suffering. Uh, you can take a direct flight from Vancouver to Dubai. It's a very long flight. Uh, about 16 hours, and then take a two-hour hopper to many of the nearby countries, Afghanistan, uh, Iran, Iraq. Uh, you can go into India. You can go to Pakistan, and you will find people in this uh, similar situation. So when I look at these children, I can't help but see my own and realize the privilege that I've been given. And I wonder if I can use my privilege to bring answers to their prayers. So I, I want to introduce you to a family that we recently helped. I'll tell you that in advance. I'll also tell you that the pictures that I'm going to show you uh, are pictures that we have permission to use from the families. These kids you're seeing have already been helped out of the brick kilns. So I'm not showing you anybody that's still stuck in that situation, but they want to help some other families. So I'm going to switch over here and see if that is populating for you. Karina, wave at me. You can see that okay. Okay, good. Excellent. So first, I want you to meet Humera. I first met her family when I was visiting one of our schools uh, started by one of our predecessors. She was able to study until the sixth grade and then was forced to leave school and to help her parents in making bricks. And we recently interviewed her family, and here is what she had to tell us. She says, it was very difficult for my parents because the work was very hard, so they could not do it alone. I had to leave the school. In the cold season, the sand is extremely cold and it's difficult to touch. In the hot weather, it's so hot that your hands will burn, so we get up at 2 or 3 a.m. and have to work in the middle of the night. Most of the year, it's sunny and hot, and we face a lot of difficulties. We're trying to teach our younger siblings to read and write, but the problems got worse, and now our younger siblings have to work in the brick kilns with us. The environment is not right for children, sisters, daughters, but we must endure. We want to be free, but we cannot leave or we will be harmed. This is her sister, Manor. She's approximately 15 years old. One thing that stuck with me in the brick kilns, most people don't have birthdays. No one keeps track of time. They are born in obscurity. 
They live a repetitious life without celebration. The majority don't have ID cards. So they're mostly guessing their age. Manor studied alongside her sister over the last few years. She's in grade five and due to coronavirus, she, uh, we had to close the schools temporarily and she was forced uh, by the Brick Hill owners to work alongside her parents. This is their mother on the left. And she tells us how much she grieves that her children are forced to work, but she doesn't know what to do. Humera and Manor are the two oldest daughters. She has six children in total. She feels very badly and says, we want to see our children set free from this slavery and we want to educate our children so they can grow in Christ. This is my desire. Rizat, their father says they have worked in the brick kilns for many years. They have no rights whatsoever. Their family debt was approximately $1,100. Uh, the daughters are at an age where their father is being pressured to give them as maids for brick kiln managers and owners. Now the girls in this situation, they will be abused. They have very little rights. Rape requires four eyewitnesses for it to be legally constituted as rape. So the girls are left to struggle on their own. Refusal can mean unbearable harm to the family. And without intervention, they'll remain in the brick homes. Paying debts alone isn't enough. True intervention requires that we help reestablish them in a new trade. It requires that we address some of the systemic problems. But this is a, this is a fairly typical family. So how do they end up in the brick homes? Well, the overwhelming majority is generational debt. The brick kiln owners try to enforce on the younger generations. So in this situation, if the mom or dad passed away for any number of issues, the kids would be forced to stay there and to continue working at a rate that they would never pay off the debt. But beyond that, there's also recruiters and loan sharks that, loan sharks that are hired on behalf of brick kiln owners who look for vulnerable families to prey upon their naivety. Any number of things can lead a family in this situation. Medical issues, childbirth food insecurities, dowries, home improvements. In the region we work, it is a religious, it's religiously charged, which puts minorities at the bottom of the caste system, meaning they don't have access to the same care that everybody else does, and especially not access to loans. Law enforcement is also very corrupt. The police are given free bricks by brick kiln owners, which allows them to, to get away with anything, including murder. Christians have the least access to help, and as such, they are the overwhelming majority in the brick kilns. Now, the debts of Rizat and his family were paid last week, so this is a very new story for us, a very exciting story, and we have moved them into Anna's house, one of our hope homes or restoration homes, uh, where they can begin to rebuild their lives and where we can customize a plan uh, to help them. Now, up until three years ago, I didn't even realize that slavery existed on this level. I, I, when I heard about it, I knew I had to do something. You know, prayers, prayers are good, but we can act. It's easy to feel so separate and disconnected, but the reality is we are all connected. And if any humanity is enslaved, on some level, we all are. In Matthew 25, Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. When I walk in the brickyards, Jesus is there. As much as I can ever feel any presence of God, I definitely feel the presence of Jesus when he's there with the least. When we witness suffering of another human being, especially suffering at the hands of another, we are witnessing the suffering of Christ. And it's with that in mind that we are dedicated to creating a better, 
more free future, serving those in the brick kilns as though we're serving Christ himself. So what does all people free do to help end slavery? We educate, we liberate, and we invest in brick-making solutions that are going to see a sustainable change in the industry. Education is primary way that we help and achieve um, and achieve life outside the brickyards by providing primary school to 700 students. We are helping create a future change for these children and their families. And this is the best part of these kids of their day. The classes are located within the brick kiln itself, allowing them to go ahead and continue their daily work. Obviously, we would like to take them out of there, but that's just not possible. So they go and they work with their families a full day. And then and we uh, conveniently put the classes toward the end of the day between three and six or three and seven o'clock where they'll come, they'll be cherished, they'll be celebrated, they'll be mentored and they'll grow. Frederick Douglass keenly observed, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. And in many ways, that's what we're doing. We're focusing on the younger generation. The cost to run a brick kiln school like this is about $2,500 a year or $5 per month per kid, just to give you an idea. Another really exciting program and thing that we're doing is trade schools for girls. We currently have seven schools running for women. And by empowering women, we can significantly increase the economic potential of the whole community. Sewing centers, stitching classes, beautician classes, and cooking are all ways that we can enable women to create a sustainable future outside of the brick kilns. And I love that we're doing this. Another thing that we're doing is we're providing a pathway to liberation. We currently run three Hope Houses. I should say we're in the process of opening two more. We have one running, Anna's house, we just opened Miriam's house, and then we've got a third that we've just also opening. But we'll have a total of 18 bedrooms, which allows, allows us to rescue and serve at least 36 families a year. So first, when families are in imminent danger, we step in by offering legal representation. Sometimes we have to pay their debts just to keep, keep things safe and to keep the rest of their family out of danger. And often we need to relocate them outside of the brick kiln. This provides us a way to do that. Second, we recognized early on that young girls were suffering the most abuse. These girls are mistreated on so many levels and they just don't have rights. So paying the debts and ending slavery, it's easy, but changing the mindset of someone who has been a slave, it's very difficult and it takes time. By bringing them into a Hope House for three to six months, we are able to diligently customize a plan that will work in the best interest of these girls. The purpose of these homes is restoration and care. We want them to experience what a safe environment is like. So when they move out, uh, they also have some skills training, some things to set them up in their own small business so they can pursue a safe and sustainable future. We also provide microloans. By providing a microloan, we can assist with the cost of setting up a sustainable business, such as a rickshaw, a retail shop, a delivery vehicle, cattle, chickens, There's so many different things they can do. These businesses help secure the ongoing freedom of families. And then lastly, we know that ending slavery requires profitable demonstrations of business without slave labor. And I don't have time to go into detail on all of these things. So I'm just giving you brief snapshots, but we're ready to purchase a brickyard. Uh, the investment needed is around $300,000. This will allow us to provide employment in a way that's humane with new technology, fair wages. Uh, we hope to provide an example in, in the community that human slaves are not the answer. 
Now, many of you are familiar with the Exodus story of Moses. Sorry, let me stop sharing there. Many of you are familiar with the Exodus story of Moses as God led Israel out of captivity through a very long wilderness journey and into a land of promise. It's a story of the most famous brick kiln in the world. Exodus says God heard Israel cry out to him, and so he sent Moses. Now, here we are thousands of years later, and I've read the story so many times, and, and there's just so many nuances and things in the story that, that sync up. These people are living out a very similar narrative to that Exodus story. Our organization, uh, we're looking for people who are like Moses, like Aaron, like Joshua. We look for people like Shifra and Pua. Um, in Exodus 1, it, there's this really odd narrative of these two Egyptian midwives that put their lives on the line to save Hebrew boys at birth. We look for men and women like this who have been commissioned to put an end to this suffering. We currently support 24 such people. We have 27 employees total, 24 of them are overseas. We resource, we administrate, and we empower them to do what they're being called to do. Uh, and, and we've had some just absolutely tremendous favor. And some of the things that are happening are just so exciting. Uh, two of our program directors are being in, included in conversations at the highest level of government. Uh, one has worked with the Minister of Human Rights on several occasions. I've met with the Minister of Human, Human Rights on numerous occasions. Another, another program director recently met with the president of the Brick Kiln Association, which oversees 20,000 brick kilns. And they are working uh, on putting a 10-year plan to change the way bricks are made. Uh, he's also met with the president of Pakistan. Uh, now, Pakistan runs with a prime minister as the most important figure, but the president is also a, a, an important figurehead. And, and we've met with him to present information on minority Christians who are being mistreated by brick kiln owners. There's so many stories that, that we could tell. We, we've provided uh, over 3,000 uh, 3, people with food, supplemental food, uh, during the entire last year of COVID. Uh, last week, we recovered a three-year-old boy who was abducted from a brick kiln by an organ harvesting mafia. Uh, we were able to return him safely to his family and file charges against the abductors. So we're seeing some incredible, incredible progress. And, and right now, I believe we're at a point in history where the world is ready to eradicate slavery in all forms. Whether or not it's possible to end slavery, it's certainly worth working on. Not only is the attitude of humanity shifting where people no longer wish to tolerate such atrocities, but technology like Google Earth, like Zoom, it's given us more access to information to reduce traffickers, to identify possible problem zones, video calls, social media, email, make it all possible to communicate and actually run an organization that provides humanitarian aid from anywhere in the world. So that's about, that's about all I, I've got time for to share, but I would love to answer questions that you have. Um, if you want to get involved in what we're doing, please visit allpeoplefree.com to learn more. Of course, you can reach out to me directly. I believe humanity is ready to see slavery end. Uh, I do want to leave you with one last thought, and that is this. Light shines the brightest in the darkest places. So don't be afraid to move into the darkness around you and see what can be done through you. No one is free until all people are free. Thank you all for your time. And Karina, I'm gonna hand this back over to you to open up the Q&R. 
All right, you guys, you can switch over to gallery view if you want. So then we can uh, get a get a sense of everybody that's here. Ben, yeah. I have loved what you're doing for so long, but this is the first time I got to kind of like hear the formal presentation. And I couldn't help but thinking a few weeks ago, I preached on um, denying yourself and taking up the cross and how mm -hmm. that is a picture of like taking the tool of the enemy and occupying it for good. And I feel like that when I hear you talk about buying a brickyard, mm -hmm. instead of just like raging against the machine, it is like you're going into this death maker mm -hmm. and bringing life. And I just, I think it's a brilliant way of approaching aid and that you're like, empowering people there instead of getting a massive organization there's so many things that i love about what you're doing so thank you so much for for sharing that and even just like you are in the process of teaching us how we dignify people who have been harmed like their consent matters and mm -hmm. their voice you're not giving them a voice you are making space for their voice and they just mm -hmm. like so excited for that. So you guys, if you've got questions or comments or blessing that you want to give for Ben and Romay, if you can see on the screen, I see Romay and Anna down on the screen as well. So um, feel free to unmute yourself and take it away. amazing Ben love what you're doing um, thanks for sharing um, curious whether what do you guys have some sort of um, uh, like you guys are investing in in a bricklaying factory do you have some sort of investment model where you're recruiting actual investment that's a that's kind of like a true investment although where the returns are obviously maybe not going to be as great but it's an actual investment model. right like a social business yeah. To answer your question, no, we don't have anything formally. At this point, it's mainly been donation-based. We are open to the idea. I do have a couple of people that have donated over $50,000 that have, have floated the idea of they would fund some, some portion of it if they were able to get their money back in, say, 10 years or something like that. Um, so, I mean, we're open to different models, but quite frankly, no, we just haven't gotten there. COVID really impacted us in a big way. It was a hard year for us. And we just had to hunker down and really take care of the people that are in our organization. We kept, we continued paying all the teachers their salaries um, and, and had to uh, had to focus on that. So no, I, I look forward to things opening back up and being able to have those conversations though. It seemed uh, that $1,100 for a debt for a whole family to be enslaved is really doable. Uh, are mm -hmm. most of the debts that um, that low or are they, you know, how do they just keep, like if you paid off somebody's debt, would they be able to stay from being back in debt tomorrow? Um, slavery is a, slavery is a mindset. Slavery is a mindset. And I, I can't stress that enough. It is such a different thing to actually work with people who have been in this. It, you know, Harriet Tubman says she would have I actually, maybe this was wrongly assigned to her. I've heard recently that this isn't actually a quote, but she says that I would have freed more slaves if people only knew they were slaves. So these people, when you free them, if you don't 
create a sustainable way for them to earn a living outside of the brick kilns. They, they don't read or write. They don't have any experience outside of the brick kilns, zero. Like they've just lived and worked there their whole lives. It's all they know, they're stuck. So we have to do a little bit more than just paying their debts off. Um, there are many organizations that, for instance, there's a Catholic organization that recently paid the debts of 70 families near where we're working. They used one of our partners to help negotiate that, that, um, those debt settlements. Uh, we will come in behind them and help those people. We will try to provide aid to those people and see if we can find different pathways for them to, to find life outside of the brick kilns. To answer your question though, no, the debts can be anywhere from $100 all the way up to four or $5,000 US. And, uh, and, and it is a very small amount and we do, uh, you know, we'll free over hundred families every year just out of, out of the generosity of people that are wanting to do that. It is still a good thing to do. It just doesn't end the systemic problem. Good question. Thank you. Are the uh, brick kilns owned by individual businesses or is there one person that owns lots of them or are there, are there government brick kilns? How does that no work? Government, yeah, no government brick kilns. It's all privately owned. Um, you find various, it's always, it's private business. So just like anything else, you have great brick kiln owners, you have terrible brick kiln owners. Um, you have people who own 20, and then you have a generational brick kiln that it's like on their seventh generation of ownership. And it's just a small little mom and pop operation. So it's really not a one size fits all. It, it, there, there's a, there's a, there's 20,000 of them just in the area that we're working in. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a big, they, they also, to give you a, a scope of the size, they're anywhere between three acres and 10 acres. That kind of helps you think about the size of them. It's like a small farm, but a brick making farm. So the, uh, the people that work there, they're making them, they're doing it with their hands, forming the bricks or how's that? Yeah. Work? Yeah. Correct. They're doing it with their hands. If you go to our website, allpeoplefree.com, you're going to get, you're going to get a lot better presentation of, of what it looks like, but yeah, they sit on the ground all day long. Uh, they have to mix the mud up. They have to form it in, into the bricks. Then they have to carry the bricks to the brick kiln, which will then they'll burn open coal in the brick kiln and, and then bake those bricks out. You know, I'm not against, uh, I'm not against hard labor. Uh, I'm not against people getting paid reasonable wages to do hard work. Nothing like that. What's happening there is way beyond that. It is women and it's children. It's abuse. It is, they're not paid. So the, the amount of money that they're making is a dollar a day, $2 a day. Our website says $2 and 45 cents a day, because that's what the most reputable slave trading organizations say they make. But in my experience, having talked to thousands of them, the average is closer to a dollar a day per person, uh, which just isn't enough to live. They, they eat one substantial meal a day and they're working, you know, 12 to 16 hours a day. So it, it's, um, yeah. Thanks. As a brick making business, is it, uh, is there enough money to pay the, the staff? I'm not seeing where that question is coming from. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm looking right, at my screen right here. I'm not oh, there you are. Thank you. Sorry. Say that one more time. Uh, as a business, like is the brick making business enough to pay staff? Uh, you know, is there enough money in it, it is, to pay them decent wages? It's, it's disgusting how much money is in it. Like, like it is just absolutely mind blowing how much money is in it. Um, so they're paying typically four to five dollars 
per thousand bricks, they're selling a thousand bricks between 70 and $100. Wow. So you just do the math on that. The margin is, it's dumb. And, and you see that expressed in the way that brick kiln owners will operate. Uh, you'll, you know, just to give you an illustration uh, of 10 brick kiln owners that I ended up visiting on one short three day stint in a particular area, three of them that I met were educated in uh, Toronto, in London, and in New York. Um, they, they were driving brand new fancy cars. So you, you look at the contrast to that, you think that this, this just doesn't sync up. It doesn't make sense. You go to Dubai, you go to some of these, these countries um, that have incredible, I mean, even there in Pakistan, they actually have a, uh, a mall, a gallery, a mall that would rival any mall that we have anywhere in the US. It's a five-star mall. And then you drive an hour away and, and this is going on. So yeah, it's, it's a very profitable business. And do you have any, get any threats? Uh, like, because you're trying to change the way this is done? Like yes, we are careful. I'm very careful, especially because I'm a white guy. I have a family I'm, I try to uh, maintain very strong relationships with people. I'm, I'm very kind to brickyard owners. I'm very honorable of their culture and their system. I'm also trying to disrupt it. So yes, I have had uh, I've had, I've had, I'm not going to go into detail on this. My family's on the call, but yes, I've been, I've been ushered off of a brickyard more than once. Um, but I'm safe enough when I'm there yeah. just to say that. Yeah. We, we're, we're careful to not put ourselves in danger. One of my friends, Saida Ghulam, um, she is like the Harriet Tubman of, of Pakistan. She's been doing this work for more than 30 years there. She's been shot twice and stabbed once. So she, she told me, she says, Ben, don't ever go on a brickyard without multiple security guards. So when I go, I'll have four security guards. I, I leave them in the, in the van. So I tell, I, I will give instructions to our guys. I don't want any security guards with guns on the, on the present, on the premise. I don't want to, I don't want to come in there looking like that. It's, it's a bad example. Um, but I have them there and uh, it, we pay debts of people um, and we try to maintain that relationship when we're, when we're removing them from the brick kilns. Whereas Sayeda will just go in there with the van, load them up and say, we're taking them. This is not right. And she'll leave and she'll get, in. she has threats constantly. So we're a little bit more careful than that. Um, but I'm gonna ask who's buying these bricks. Is it the government? About, I mean, who's the perpetrators? Who's this is the fifth largest, sure, sure. You're asking who's buying the bricks, right? It's a little mm -hmm. bit muddled. Yeah. So it's this is the primary building source. They don't use lumber in this particular area uh, of the world. So bricks build everything. And we're talking about one of the most populous areas in the world. So like where we're working is the fifth largest country by population. It's 20, 200 million people live there. They have, they have 10 cities that are over a million people. And their larger cities are twice the size of New York. Um, so we're talking about a ton of bricks. Also, uh, they do ship bricks to England. Uh, you know, Pakistan and India are the breadbasket. We're the breadbasket of, of uh, the UK. And so the UK does buy bricks. Do, do they know where they're coming from? I mean, it's... As much as you and I know where our clothes are coming from and how many children made them, you know, it's, it's yeah. just a, it's a very limited awareness. And that's just like, for many of you, this is probably the first time you've heard anything like this. Three years ago, I'd never heard anything about this. 
So it's uh, trying to get the information out there. Yeah, absolutely. And just wondering, how would a, a new plant that uh, that you would want to see, your organization would want to see, contrast just basically with, with what exists now in the, in the slave context? We're using a model that's effective that is already working. So there's many people working on this front. We're just trying to throw our best efforts in the mix and say, hey, listen, mm -hmm. let's 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 gather these relationships together and let's just keep pushing this thing along. Um, so Saeed Gulam's organization, um, she's been given a presidential award from Bill Clinton, the Clinton Foundation, and they, they have actually run three brick kilns. Unfortunately, all three of the brick kiln owners were murdered uh, because she is really disrupting things there. And that's great. I'm happy that she is because somebody needs to do it. She's a Muslim woman fighting for Christians, which is a pretty interesting thing. Um, but she has a model. They guarantee it works. They've seen it work. So we would come in there with a little bit different attitude under the radar a little bit more than she is and, and use the systems that are in place. There's machines that can make the bricks instead of women and children. $15,000, you can purchase a machine that can outproduce 10 families. So it, it's, not, uh, it's not difficult. The rest of the world has already eliminated slavery. Just parts of the world are still a little far behind. Thank you. Lynn, can, I know you've been waiting to pop in. Yes, I just wanted to ask Ben, how close are you to being able to purchase a, a brick kiln for your well, organization? Sure, good question. We need, we need a substantial investment. We need somebody who's gonna step up with a couple hundred thousand dollars. In full disclosure, we have over $150,000 set aside for our programs. Um, our accountant would have to give a detail of how it's set aside, but that maintains all of our programs for a little less than a year. And I would be reluctant to just go out and spend all that money on a brick kiln unless somebody was really stepping up and said, hey, we're gonna take care of this. Okay, thank you. I don't know where that's going to come from. Ben, um, how much interest, I mean, uh, you know, all of us are somewhere on the uh, continuum between uh, capitalism and anti-capitalism. How much sure. interest is there in uh, government regulation for these, the, for the industry to begin with? Because they're, they're obviously overseeing it and some of them are, are being taxed and, and so on and so on. So you're asking if I'm understanding the question correctly is what does the government do to regulate these brick kilns? There's heavy, there's heavy uh, laws in place. The application of the laws is a totally different story. So thankfully they've already adopted to their constitution that bonded labor is illegal. They've adopted their constitution that brick kilns cannot have children working on there that there's a minimum wage that has to be held, but nothing is actually done. So for instance, our organization, what, when I started getting into all of these higher up, like the Minister of Human Rights and started meeting with some of these uh, you know, parliament members, there's actually parliament members that, that live in Vancouver, oddly enough, they're in Vancouver right now. So I started meeting with these people. Uh, I quickly learned that our organization needs to be doing the work. We wanna be the hands and feet. So yes, we're involved on some level up there, but the reality is those guys are not actually helping these children. These children are still in the, they're, they're 10, 20 years away from seeing the changes trickle down. And that's only if they hire enforcement and, and force these people to shut down, which is a little, a little further away. I want to see the culture begin to change, not just the law. 
Law is important to change. It's been changed. They're continuing to change it. The president of the Brick Home Association is putting together a 10-year plan to change it. But we're we're there on the ground trying to change the culture that is happening. Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, that's what I've experienced in some parts of the world where, you know, they say, yep, healthcare, they, they pass a law, they say, yep, healthcare is provided for uh, for all these people. Um, that's a wonderful law. Oh, look, look, this country has that law. They, they provide healthcare for everybody. But on the ground, nothing is happening. And yeah, that's, that's pretty frustrating. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you um, are interested in changing the culture. I'm wondering if you see what, what are the factors or root causes, et cetera, that, I mean, obviously human nature, but what, how do you see uh, the most effective route to changing the underlying culture so that people, I mean, really, essentially the, the brick kiln owners are interested in changing their model? Well, I think we have to uh, appeal to their greed. They're in this for the money. We need to show them that this is the progressive way forward. The culture that we're dealing with is very proud. One of, one of our friends, um, she invented a, a poop waste disposal that turns waste and poop into drinkable water. She works, she, she runs an organization that Bill Gates funds. And she, she actually lives here. And in uh, where she works, which is in the same region I work, they actually had to buy the manager of their facility a brand new Porsche so that he would show up on the grounds very flashily and people would get his attention to be like, oh, this is the way forward because otherwise it looks disgusting. Why would you do that? So it, you're dealing a lot with image. Um, and, and so I think it's important that we demonstrate a model, but then we also show this is a good way forward. Um, some of you heard from Safi Koskos. I'm trying to get him to help me along with somebody else we've already recruited. It is an Islamic scholar to present uh, present a methodology from the Islamic point of view of why they want to treat these people better. We're trying to work on that. We're building relationships with these people. We're getting good rapport with these people. Um, so I, I, that's not a really quick, easy answer, and I'd be happy to dialogue with you more, but that's part of it. Thanks. I doubt there's an easy, quick answer. True. Hey, Ben, I was wondering, um, as you are looking to make these cultural shifts and whatnot. I'm curious about what you're doing as an organization to, um, what, what's the word like, the, the word I'm thinking of is ethnocentrism, but that's a very academic word. The idea that you are a white body, a Christian body, a male body coming into these spaces um, and how you create awareness while still trying to shift uh, slavery culture like how do you my my greatest I, I think I get your question and to answer you Morgan my greatest help is not to them on the ground quite frankly so my greatest uh asset to the people that we're supporting is for me to get in front of my friends and to connect the generosity of my friends to them um I can get meetings with anybody it's just a weird thing when you're in a country like that that you can't you know for $15,000, you can go sit in front of the prime minister. Um, so you can get these meetings with people. And at times that, that's beneficial and it's helpful, but I use them uh, intentionally at the behest of the people that we're supporting. I am not the person going in there and doing these things. I'm the one having Zoom calls with them, talking through the issues, asking them questions, trying to help direct them, trying to hear what they think the answers are, 
and then trying to trying to uh, administrate and facilitate those answers with them. Does that help answer your question? Yeah, it does. And yeah, cool. Thank you. Hey, Ben, I, uh, so great to have you here. I, I love hearing what you've got to say again. Um, I know you said that buying a brickyard is uh, one of your goals. Um, do you have any, maybe apart from that, or maybe that is it, um, any financial goals for this coming up year? The, the targets you're looking for or goals or dreams you have? Yeah, it's such a hard thing to answer in the middle of COVID, Josh, just because, I mean, look at our presentation like this is we're doing this online which is awesome it's great i love it but it's just so difficult to get in front of people the way that you can and uh, and people are struggling there's a lot of people that are struggling so uh i know what our budget number is i mean there's our budget and then there's what we have to do to maintain our programs and what we had hoped to do and uh and, and those are those are um you know difficult things to to actually extrapolate out if i could answer that question $450,000 a year would enable us to purchase the brickyard, get it up and running. We need that for about two years. Purchase the brickyard, continue to expand all the programs at the current rate that we're running, um, and, and then be able to step back from that number and it would do its own thing. So once we have the brick kiln in place, it actually funds the majority of the schools. So what happens is all the churches, businesses, and partners that we have that are funding these schools, the resources can be, can be spent to duplicate and multiply what we're doing over there. Uh, but, you know, right now, you know, organization brings in usually between 250 and $300,000 a year and uh, probably it's $15,000 a month right now to sustain our programs just over there. Uh, and then our administration, it's, it's worth noting to let everybody know, our administration has been funded by a few generous people. So when somebody donates to all people free, 90% of the phones, 90% of the funds go over there. It's not paying my mortgage. We have friends that are paying my mortgage essentially, if that helps you. Hey ben, uh, yeah. Dave, uh, Dave here. Uh, the, um, you know, the approach of changing culture uh, really uh, resonates with me, uh, especially education. And um, my question is, with regards to educational uh, strategies, which avenue, you mentioned uh, women and girls' education, the uh, practical skills, and you talked about the kids and learning, reading, writing. Which of the ones would deliver the greatest bang for buck? Investment right. in which? You got it. So after doing this for a couple of years, the skills trade schools for girls are going to be the most effective thing we can do. And, and eventually roll them out for boys as well. We're looking right now at a one-year program, a third program that we haven't added into the education sector yet, where we will take 14, 15, 16-year-old uh, willing people, willing boys and girls out of the brick kiln altogether. And we will put them in essentially a in like a uh, boarding school where we're going to actually have them for one year. We're going to take them from zero education all the way to the eighth grade in one year. We believe we can do it. Um, so we're trying to increase that bang for the buck because right now we're, we're doing these primary schools in the brick kilns, and that's what our predecessors had been doing for seven years. It is a very difficult and long-term solution. It's the right solution. It's good. Education's always good. Uh, it's providing a valuable, uh, it's meeting a valuable need, but 
the quickest thing is, you know, these six month schools for, for these young girls. One of the things I didn't mention is we teach them all to read and write in that six month school. So when they're becoming a beautician, there's actually a program in Pakistan to help teach them to read and write in Urdu. So we, we implement, that, implement that as well. That's the best bang for your buck on the education part of it. So Ben, am I hearing you right that right now, what, what your budget is doing is the primary schools and the trade schools and paying your staff or like your partners out there. Yeah, 24 partners. Yeah, and that if you were able to make that leap to like uh, owning the brickyard, changing the thing like that, this stuff becomes self-sustaining. And I am always looking for self-sustaining solutions. We don't have enough time to go into all of this and to talk about my background and history and what I've even done here on my own property. I'm looking for self-sustaining solutions. So one of our hope houses or rescue houses uh, that we, we just recently acquired. It's a five bedroom house in Kasur. It's dead of just us paying the rent on it. We are paying the rent obviously right now, but what we did is we went, we purchased rickshaws and we have started a rickshaw business where uh, some of the people that we've helped liberate out of slavery are going to work for us, earning an income. And then they repay us a commission of the money that they're making. And that pays for the hope house. So that house is being fully funded by people that we helped get out of the brick kilns. And we're not sending money for that one. So we're sending money for the other two, but all we did was send money for the rickshaws on that one. Right. So I, that, that's what I'm trying to go for. I'm trying to find a way to mechanize this so that it's not just, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm plenty happy to put the generosity of, of you know, North America in, in touch with people who need it because there needs to be some. But at the same time, I'm trying to look for self-sustaining sustaining solutions within the country. Which I just want to like, highlight the brilliance of that because it removes you as the chronic savior of the yeah, program right yeah like, you got it yeah. and and that's we need that kind of mindset for when we're thinking of where we're putting our money it's good that we want to help people mm-hmm. but but this is a a different mindset of helping that is like we're you are actually working yourself out of jobs and teaching and like that is so important to me that it's great for us to have a place to give because we're better when we give, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. Is, but, but that you are setting up a model that is like one day they won't need you. Right. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah. You got it. I uh, think this is fascinating because uh, most of us are sitting in the Abbotsford area and we're about 10 or 15 minutes away from the Claiborne brick plant uh, Hmm. that started in 1905 in Claiborne Village, uh, which is most famous for its candy store now. And uh, Jeff probably goes there a lot. But uh, anyway, uh, then it it, uh, moved uh, several times and it moved to downtown Abbotsford. Uh, It's all dismantled now, but... uh, it moved a couple different places, but it's just fascinating. They all like there's a real connection. And <clears throat> I hear you said that you loved history. I don't know if many of us remember this or know about this, but uh, for us to be involved, maybe a little bit, there's a there's a physical connection too. So I just thought I'd bring that up for all you to know. Claiborne Brick Factory. You can look it up and uh, 
find about that. Thanks. That was cool. Ben, I have a question. Um, so at the beginning of your presentation, you were showing a picture of a family with children. Would you be able to tell us a little bit about where they're at now? Um, I don't know if you're allowed or if that, that, that's allowed. They're in the NSLs. Like a, a, a story. They're just out of the brick kiln. They're okay. just being relocated to Anna's house. So right now they're being jarred substantially. Usually when somebody comes out of that, depending on how long they've been in there, it is a, um, it's a mental spiral. Like it's a, it's a difficult thing for them. Uh, it's a quite an adjustment to go from the physical wear and tear of working in a brick kiln is just absolutely excruciating. For me, just to walk around in the brick kilns, I'll be there in six weeks. I'm going back in six weeks. And it'll be 120 degrees with a 900 degree oven in the middle in sand. And these guys, they'll be out there for 12 to 16 hours a day working. And, and uh, they'll be out there working 12 to 16 hours a day. And, and they live in it. They have, there's no air conditioning. They don't get away from it. So you do that long enough, it takes a toll. So that family, they'll be resting, we'll be evaluating them, they have to get medical attention, we'll be sending, uh, sending them to the hospital and they have to get a complete medical exam. Uh, we start after a couple of weeks of them acclimating to this new environment, then we start to probe what kinds of things might they wanna do. And uh, we bring in a number of different people that will expose them to think, different skills and traits and just try to see if what, what things are, or connecting the most with them. Does that, does that answer your question? Hey, Ben. Sorry, go ahead, Jeff. No, uh, I was just going to actually ask. I mean, obviously, this is a, an investment um, uh, into what you're doing is uh, is worthwhile, regardless. But um, do you guys um, have only American, or do you have a Canadian um, uh, giving or donor website? I don't have Canadian. We actually had started uh, an application with Hope for the Nations, I believe it's called. It's out of Kelowna. Yeah. So we had started. They've approved us, and then COVID hit. And so everything's just basically been on pause because I was supposed to speak at a number of, of churches and places up there. We were going to do some fundraisers in Vancouver and, and, uh, but that kind of all put on hold. My guess is you would probably need to talk with the bridge and see if they're willing to uh, participate. And aside from that, I don't, I don't know. It's possible that I could call the Hope for the Nations, but I would, churches are typically easier to transfer funds. Like a 501c3 in the United States can receive funds from a Canadian organization without any issues. But I, don't I haven't had any of those conversations with anybody, so I'd have to have a few more conversations. That's great. Thank you so much. So anybody else, anything that you, questions that you have or comments? I love, <laughs> I mean, like, like we've talked around this and mentioned it with you guys for so long, but I love this chance to hear the specifics in a formal way. It's really helpful. I even just, like the fact that you are honoring and acknowledging the trauma of their bodies. That's so important. I just, I just feel like this is taking the best of 
what we're all learning on this side of the world and just releasing it. I, that's cool beans, man. <laughs> I can hear my wife laughing from downstairs. <laughs> my job. Hey, Ben. Yes. Stowing here. Um, hey. I remember talking to a guy who was visiting in jail once, and I asked him a question. I says, uh, trying to lead him to the Lord, talking to him about the Lord. And I asked him a question, when is a thief no longer a thief? And uh, he says, well, when they throw us in jail. And I said, mm. well, not really, because you guys are stealing from each other in jail, too. So I said, I think the answer is when he's something else. Uh, a thief is no longer a thief as when he's something else. And I was trying to get him to think about becoming a new identity in Christ. So the question I had was, how is the gospel, the message of the gospel, the good news of Christ, that you can be something else? Um, how is that message in Pakistan working out with, with the antagonism of the Muslim culture? Is that part of the rub that you're feeling there you know how is that working out i'm not sure if i fully uh fully understand your question other than to say that uh the message the good news of jesus it just works everywhere in fact it probably is more visible it demonstrates itself more effectively in those hard situations um you know when you see somebody that's in a dire situation and they are still finding hope, still finding joy, still finding love for their neighbor and peace. You know, that's, that's a pretty big thing. But uh, that, that's not an easy question to answer. The relationship between Islam and Christianity in, in Asia, in, in the Punjab region where we work, it's very complicated, incredibly complicated. And, and I could aim that toward the U.S. and say, Christianity is also very complicated. Um, so it's not like we're dealing, I mean, you have extreme in Islam and you have extreme in Christianity. Um, the overwhelming majority of people in Pakistan, the Islamic community, they are incredibly warm, loving, kind, hospitable people, very generous. Um, some of the most hospitable and generous people I've ever met. Simultaneously, there's a small percentage that are radicalized and, and you know, you've seen enough movies and heard enough on the news to know what, what that small percentage believes. So, it, and, and, you know, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's persecution and all kinds of stuff, but I, I would like to believe that uh, the message of love and hope and of Jesus, it wins. All right, that's fantastic. So I want to give one last all call. <laughs> Anybody, if you've got anything else, any questions burning or comments? Not, not a you... question, not a question, but just a comment of, of just thanks, Ben, for being uh, here and letting us in on this and just raising our awareness on this. It's super just to, to connect with that and just bless you, Rinwell, the work you're doing. 
Thank you, John. Appreciate that very much. And I am a real human and I live near you and Josh and Karina know how to get a hold of us. You're going to hear from my lovely bride in a couple of weeks. She's going to, she's going to preach. She'll preach. She'll bring it. <laughs> so when I'm in Pakistan, actually, I think she's preaching, but uh, so I'm excited for you to have an opportunity to hear, hear her, but we can be reached. So if you have questions and you want to dialogue some more, just reach out to Karina, Josh, they'll put us in touch. Absolutely. All right, we're getting all the thumbs up. Everybody is super glad you came. So I am just gonna bless you and release you. So um, Jesus, you are the light in dark places. You are, you are the light in dark places in us and you are the light in every dark corner of the world. And God, we don't understand how that works sometimes where your love is not separate from even the darkest place. But I thank you for organizations like All People Free and the way they are exposing the light that already exists in the dark places. And so I just pray for all of the partners that are in Pakistan. I pray for Ben and Romay and their family. We pray for their safety. We pray for inspiration and ideas that continue to move them outside of the box and what it means to love people and bring light and love and hope um, to these dark places. So amen. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Romay. Thank you everybody for your thoughtful participation. Really love that. And we release you. Go